The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. And that'll do it. It's over. The Golden State Warriors return to a familiar place. They're on top of the NBA world. The fourth title in eight years. The Dubs dynasty is still very much alive. Yeah, the NBA champions are the Golden State Warriors, 103-90 to last night to finish off the Celtics in six games. That's four titles in eight years for the Warriors, six finals visits uh, in the last eight years. Yeah, they're a dynasty. Um, where do they rank on the list of dynasties? Well, they're not at the top, uh, but they are climbing, and they may have more climbing to do. Uh, 103 to 90 last night in game six in a raucous Boston Garden. Another memorable performance from Steph Curry. More on this coming up shortly. Also, Chris Miller will be on the podcast today. Chris, of course, now the new uh, play-by-play voice of the Wizards on NBC Sports Washington. Uh, We'll talk NBA Finals, uh, Golden State Boston with Chris and the Wizards uh, right now on the board at number 10 overall in next Thursday night's draft. But will they have that 10th pick or will they trade it uh, for a veteran point guard? We'll ask Chris about that. Uh, as well. Also on the show today, Dave Ungrady and Don Marcus, uh, they've been producing, co-producing a mixed legacy, uh, the legacy of Len Bias. 36 years ago tonight, Len Bias was selected in the 1986 draft, number two overall by the defending champion Boston Celtics. Uh, and then two nights later, Len Bias was dead. Uh, Those two gentlemen have joined me on the podcast previously. They will do so again, and we'll talk uh, to them as they are wrapping up um, their podcast series on the legacy of Len Bias. The show today is brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code KevinDC, and they'll match your first deposit dollar for dollar all the way up to a thousand bucks. I was looking on my bookie as I occasionally do at a lot of the NFL prop bets and their offensive rookie of the year odds. I wanted to see where they had Jahan Dotson. Uh, Jahan Dotson was the 16th overall pick in the draft. He is the 13th pick in the odds for offensive 
Rookie of the Year at plus 3,200. So bet 100, win 3,200 on Jahan Dotson. To be honest with you, I don't think that's that bad of a play. I think there's a chance he could have a really good year. The favorite for the Offensive Rookie of the Year is Kenny Pickett, uh, the quarterback that was picked in the first round by the Steelers. Drake London is the second pick for Offensive Rookie of the Year. And I promise you, if Drake London, the receiver out of USC, had been on the board at number 11 overall, where Washington was scheduled to pick, he would have been a Washington wide receiver. Instead, they traded back, um, picked up some picks with the Saints, and took Jahan Dotson at number 16 overall. Go to mybookie.ag, mybookie.com, use my promo code, KevinDC. And they'll match your first deposit. They'll double it uh, all the way up to $1,000. So as we are beginning the podcast today, there is breaking news on the Commanders. Um, The Commanders head coach, Ron Rivera, has been fined $100,000 for... That $100,000 fine sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It was one week ago today that Ron Rivera levied a $100,000 fine against Jack Del Rio. Ron Rivera fined $100,000, and the commanders as a team docked two OTA practices for next year for excessive contact in practice drills. I think Ben Standing among the first to report that from The Athletic. Um, and the commanders, again, Rivera gets fined $100,000 personally, and the team gets docked two of their OTA practices in 2023. They'll have nine scheduled, but now only seven scheduled. Uh, NFL teams get nine. They'll have seven for excessive contact in practice drills. Uh, This would kind of go uh, under the category of there's always something, you know, Uh, just wait a day and something else will pop up, whether it's Del Rio or Congress or another investigation. They're not the only team that was penalized uh, for this infraction. The Cowboys were similarly punished for uh, a similar thing on Thursday. The Texans also got punished today, but neither organization was penalized as severely as Washington was. So Washington gets the top uh, you know, uh, penalty uh, for excessive contact. Contact. Remember last week during OTAs, Ron Rivera apparently got as angry as he's gotten ever, according to the people that were there, for a hit that Jeremy Reeves put on Deami Brown, and Deami Brown got up and was a little bit sore. Um, the team had no statement. They declined comment um, on uh, this particular uh, penalty from the league. The NFL informed Martin Mayhew, the general manager, via letter about the penalties, and the letter stated, quote, there's no question, closed quote, a team does this to gain a competitive advantage. The collective bargaining agreement uh, prohibits live uh, contact um, during these OTA sessions, and Washington had excessive 
live contact. According to the letter, Washington's, quote, intensity and tempo of the club's interior line play and pass coverage during 11-on-11 drills were at a level where players were clearly engaged in physical contests, closed quote. In some cases, players were slow to recover after those collisions. The letter stated Rivera needed to intervene when practices became too physical and remind players of the rules and to maintain, quote, appropriate control, closed quote. So there was the Reeves and Diami Brown, but apparently there was more than just that incident, according to reports. Rivera, at one point after that particular OTA session last week, said, quote, I really appreciate the way they practice, the way they practice hard, and they get competitive every now and then, but we've got to have the discipline to understand, closed quote. And again, Um, There are uh, reports out there that there were collisions worse than that one, the Reeves-Diami-Brown collision, during some of the uh, other OTA practices which were closed to the media. The reason the the Diami-Brown-Jeremy Reeves collision and then subsequent berating from Rivera uh, was reported on is because media was there live. So um, there you go. I don't hate this at all. I know it could be, uh, you know, thrown into the bucket of, my God, can this team ever do anything right? Or or are they always going to get picked on? Uh, Or always going to do things that allow people to kind of pick on them? Um, I don't think they've been picked on much. I think most of it has been earned and deserved over the years. But this is straight out of my good friend Doc Walker's playbook, which is... I guarantee you he loves it. I haven't heard his podcast today, and maybe he recorded a podcast this morning um, before this news broke. But this is something the Ravens have been fined for in previous years. Two OTA practices next year? Who cares? I love what it at least, you know, from outside looking in represents, and that is a team that's hungry that that is competitive and that wants to get ready for the 2022 season. Who knows what it really represents? For all we know, the coaches let it get out of control and the players didn't like it very much. But I love what it represents in terms of competitive edginess. I don't hate this at all based on this early report of this. I don't know, subject to change if we find out more. But giving up two OTA days because they were too aggressive and the hitting was too excessive in OTAs, um, I don't hate it. Maybe that's just me, but I don't hate it. There was other news commanders related. Uh, They announced their training camp schedule July 27th through August 18th. None of it in Richmond. All of it in Ashburn with a practice uh, scheduled for the public at FedEx Field as well. Uh, The Richmond thing never worked out for the city of Richmond. It really didn't work out from a football standpoint for the team. Financially, it worked out well for Dan Snyder and the business side, um, but Uh, There were plenty of days down there where the field was not uh, in condition after flooding rains, afternoon thunderstorms to be practiced on. And they would have to go inside of a hotel ballroom 
uh, to get some of their work done. You know, a lot of coaches will tell you there's a benefit to being away for training camp, uh, but not if it rains, you can't practice uh, if there are flooding rains. Uh, I don't think this was ever beneficial to the football team, uh, and it certainly wasn't beneficial uh, to Richmond. But training camp begins July 27th. It'll be here before we know it. And there is a free event at FedEx Field uh, scheduled for Saturday, August 6th in the evening from 6.45 to 9 p.m. Uh, that's a free event open to the public, um, although you got to claim tickets um, at Ticketmaster. Um, so anyway, uh, that's pretty much the commander's news of the day. I want to get to the NBA um, and last night's game, and then Chris Miller will jump on with me to continue the conversation. So first of all, as it relates to the game last night, I'll start with this. You can't turn the ball over 22 times, as Boston did, against a team like Golden State and expect to win. That was the biggest issue they had all series long. They could not protect the basketball, specifically their two best players, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, both of whom last night were awful. Now, Jalen Brown had 34 points. It's hard to, to, to say that a guy was awful when he scores 34 points, um, but I did not think he was very good. He had five turnovers, could have been more. Jason Tatum had five turnovers, 13 points on six of eight shooting. He was horrendous last night. He ended up this playoff season with 100 turnovers, more than any player in the history of the league. Um, he was not up to the occasion. He looked exhausted to me the other night. He looked it again last night after they jumped out 14-2 to and then gave up at the end of the first quarter and into the second quarter a 21-0 Golden State run, the biggest run unanswered in 50 years in the NBA Finals. Boston came out with high energy, looking for the knockout punch. I thought they had delivered it when they were up 14-2. to uh, but Golden State uh, has too much championship uh, pedigree and medal. Uh, certainly, Clay and Draymond and 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 Steph, um, they smelled blood in the water heading into this game last night. I thought there would be a game seven. I was wrong. Steph Curry with another memorable performance, uh, a great performance. Thirty-four points, seven assists. Probably should have been more. Two steals, seven rebounds. As much as he was double teamed, double teamed uh, the way that he, that he uh, has to, to, to is required to handle the ball, just two turnovers in 40 minutes. 12 of 21 from the floor, six of 11 from behind the arc, four for four from the free throw line. Free throw line. He didn't shoot his free throws until late in the game. 34 to follow up the 43 and 10 rebounds that he had the last game in Boston Garden in Game Four. Uh, he is the runaway MVP, his first Finals MVP, um, and really I think it should have been his second. I think their first title that Iguodala got it, but I thought Curry deserved it. But uh, Steph Curry um, really last night with another incredible performance. I thought it was Draymond Green's best game. I thought Klay Thompson was outstanding at times. I thought Jordan Poole was great. Otto Porter had two made three-pointers in just – 13 uh, minutes, but Golden State wins in, a, in another game. We did not have one great 
dramatic game in the NBA Finals. Not one of them. Every single game in this series was won by 10 or more points. Um, The dramatic run by Golden State at the end of the first quarter and uh, through the second quarter was exciting. They went from down 12 to up 21. There was a 33-point swing in about 10 minutes of real time. Uh, 10 minutes of, of basketball clock time. Um, it was uh, really quite uh, remarkable, um, the run that Golden State went on. Uh, not 10 minutes, really. It was more like 15 minutes of clock time. They were down 14-2 to two, about five minutes into the game, and they went up 21 with, I don't know, about four minutes left in the second quarter. That's roughly what I'm thinking it was. So, yeah, um, something like 15 minutes of clock time. But... Whatever, that game never really got competitive after that. Uh, Jason Tatum, I I mean, just a terrible performance. He had five turnovers. He was a mess with the basketball in his hand. He was a mess, you know, when he got uh, run at defensively by a second defender. He couldn't pass the ball to save his life. He didn't shoot it well last night, made just one of four from behind the arc. Uh, And he looked exhausted to me. Um, but bottom line is, Boston, when in this uh, postseason, when they weren't turning the ball over and the other team had to face them uh, with a, a set defense, it was really difficult to score. When they turned it over and you had live ball turnovers turning into transition, uh, they lost. Um, and that's what happened in this series. Uh, Golden State turned all of those turnovers into much easier scoring opportunities. Uh, and they won uh, last night to end it. And we've got to talk about uh, two other things as it relates to these NBA Finals before we get to Chris Miller. One is this. Four titles in eight years, six finals appearances in eight years. Uh, The two finals they lost, 2016 to LeBron's Cavs, when Draymond Green got suspended uh, with the Warriors up three games to one. That should have been five titles in six years. He should have never been uh, suspended. Um, And then uh, to Kawhi Leonard uh, and the Toronto Raptors when Kevin Durant got hurt. The two years they didn't make the finals, one was a COVID bubble year, weird you know, pandemic uh, season, and the other was they were devastated by injuries. Um, so Golden State's run here, uh, which started, you know, in 20, uh, you know, the 2014-2015 season, um, is really now we're starting to talk about all time in terms of dynasties. You know, I, I don't put it ahead of obviously the Celtics dynastic, you know, run through the 60s. You know, I don't put it ahead of what the Bulls did in the 90s. They won six titles. I personally would not put it ahead of the Lakers and their run with Magic, Kareem, Worthy, etc. Uh, in the 80s when they won five titles from 1980 through 1988 and were in other finals appearances that they lost, uh, losing uh, to the Sixers, the Celtics, and then uh, finally uh, to the Pistons um, as well. I mean, eight finals appearances for the Lakers over that stretch is amazing. And of course, the Celtics of the 60s, far different league back then, but 12 finals appearances, 11 uh, rings for Bill Russell and company from 1957 and 1969. Those are the three true uh, all-time dynasties in the NBA. 
But you start to now look at Golden State with their fourth title uh, from 2014 through last night. They're probably next in line. I mean, you could go to the Celtics of the 80s who won three titles with Larry Bird and made five finals appearances, uh, but the the Warriors are four titles and six uh, finals appearances. And again, I think they should have had a fifth title if Draymond Green doesn't get suspended up three games to one. And it took, you know, everything Kawhi Leonard and Toronto had and a major injury to Kevin Durant to lose the sixth time they were there. And who knows what would have come of the pandemic year um, had it been a normal basketball year. But really that, and, and I would throw the Spurs in there over though, even though it was over a much longer period of time, their five NBA titles six NBA Finals appearances, but really over a 17-year period, you know, with Tim Duncan um, and all of the great players uh, that surrounded him, starting with David Robinson and going to Ginobili and Tony Parker, uh, et cetera. Uh, but in order, it's, to, for me, probably the, the Celtics of the 60s, even though I put that kind of in a category by itself, the league had fewer teams and man, those Celtics were loaded with Hall of Famers. The Bulls of the 90s, the Lakers of the 80s. You know, those are the the three that really stand out. But now Golden State's starting to approach that conversation. The other part of, uh, of the finals story is Steph Curry. And what he did last night to strengthen uh, slash enhance his legacy. I, we've talked about this, Tommy and I have talked about it. You know, obviously Tommy has very strong feelings about the way basketball's played. I don't think he truly understands what a great scorer Steph Curry is. And he likes to use the term decoy, but what it does uh, in terms of making everybody else better when you're the kind of shooter and scorer that Steph Curry is. My God, they picked him up 75 feet from the basket in this series and then doubled him consistently when he had the ball in the front court several times almost right when he crossed half court. You don't think playing four on three is easier then playing four on four the rest of the uh, the way, uh, yeah. Steph Curry's presence on a basketball fo- floor has always given his team a better chance. He's not the only player in the history of the game to do that, clearly. But very rarely in the history of the game have you seen a player picked up and dragged from seventy-five feet from the basket all the way into the front court and then doubled. That's an incredible thing to even discuss when it comes to basketball. No player is the answer to that question. No player has ever been guarded in that kind of a way. Look, I've said this before. He's the greatest shooter, uh, in my opinion, in NBA history. He's the best combined ball handler and shooter in one body uh, that I've ever watched uh, in NBA history. He's got four titles. He's got two regular season MVPs. He's got two scoring titles. He's got a finals MVP now. Only Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Michael Jordan uh, have what he has in those categories or more. That's it. 
You know, people have nitpicked at his legacy, nitpicked at his his placement among the greatest players of all time. There's been this comparison to Kevin Durant. You know, could he do it without Durant? Well, he already did it once without Durant. Should have done it twice uh, without KD. Um, and he just did it in the most unlikely of, of ways. Uh, Steve Kerr called it the most unlikely of titles. Steph Curry carried a team like other greats have done. He carried that team. Wiggins was outstanding. Green and Thompson, I was glad to see him get it going um, in this series as well in some key moments. But Steph Curry was the story of these NBA Finals. And he's got more to go. You can't write the story and complete it now. Um, He could win another title or two, but for me – Steph Curry is now a top 10 player all time. I talked about this with Tommy. My list is Michael, Magic, Wilt, LeBron, Russell, Kareem, Larry, Kobe, Elijah Wan, and now I've got Steph at number 10. I move him ahead of Durant, Oscar, Duncan, and Shaq and into the top 10. So after Curry, you can start with Shaq and Duncan, Uh, for your conversation at 11, Oscar and Durant for your conversation at 13 and 14. I am definitively putting Steph into my all-time top 10 with some room to climb. He's only 34 years old, although it would be hard for me to see him at the Michael Magic, Larry, um, LeBron uh, category uh, to see him uh, up that high. Um, but who knows? Uh, there is more to come. They're going to be a threat next year. They are. I mean, they had some young players. I mean, Wiseman didn't play at all. Uh, Kaminga didn't play that much. I think the West is loaded, and I think look out for the Clippers next year with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George back healthy. Um, but um, Golden State, you know, they're the favorites, 5-1, uh, to one, according to Caesars, to win the NBA title next year. Uh, Brooklyn and Boston are next at 6-1, to one, and then the Bucks, Suns, and Clippers are all at 8-1 to one to win the NBA title. So there could be a lot more uh, to come. Uh, the NBA Finals didn't produce a great game. The NBA playoffs were really uh, kind of boring in terms of dramatic games, but there were some incredible performances and certainly – Steph's performance in these NBA Finals, spectacular. The Celtics uh, did a lot of it to themselves, too. Can't turn the ball over the way they did and expect to beat a good team like Golden State. All right, uh, up next, Chris Miller will join me. We'll continue our NBA conversation and turn it also to a conversation about what the Wizards will be doing um, this time next week or what they will have already done uh, this time next week. Uh, That's next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic. Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. All right, joining us on the show now is Chris Miller. Chris is the Washington Wizards play-by-play voice moving forward, uh, starting in the 2022-2023 season. Of course, he's done a lot of games over the course of uh, a long time, and I am thrilled. Uh, You and I have already talked before. I can't even remember if you've been on the radio show or the podcast since you were named uh, the Wizards play-by-play voice. But if you haven't been, congratulations on that. It's earned. uh, It's well-deserved. And I think a lot of people that know you are very excited uh, for you uh, to to, to get that gig. Um, And we'll talk some Wizards. But, you know, you watched last night. You've been watching – First of all, I'm just curious. Before last night, what did you think was going to happen? Because I still gave Boston a chance. I I said before the series started, Kevin, and thank you again. Um, I said Warriors in six. I thought the Warriors were going to win the title before the season started. They were. They just looked to me like a team that was ready to run it back again with some really good young complementary pieces. And I'll get to that in a second. But I think. When it's all said and done, maybe today, maybe two weeks from now, maybe three weeks, maybe the start of even the next season, the Boston Celtics are going to go back and look at game four and go, we just lost the series. When they lost the game four, I was like, oh, this is a wrap. Because I felt like that was their kill shot. And they didn't take it, and they allowed Golden State to get one in Boston. And then obviously we knew what happened after that. But I all along thought the Warriors were going to win in six. I thought it was going to be a very competitive series, which it ended up really being. But seeing what happened in Game 6, especially in that second quarter, that 21 to nothing run, I thought the Warriors, Kevin, took the life out of Boston, took their heart, ripped it out. The fans turned on them. And the one thing that, you know, being with this Wizards organization for 15 years, we've always had problems in Boston because we could never take the crowd out of it. I think the fuel that this team gets in Boston is predicated on their fans. And when you can get their fans to boo them, you got a chance. And I just thought they just ripped their heart out last night. 
Yeah, you were, by the way, really referring to Game 5 when Curry had a, a bad shooting night and they still lost. Game 5, thank you very much. Yeah, as the, okay, yeah, as, as the game that they'll look back and regret for a long period of time, and that was the game that Wiggins had, yeah. you know, his career game. Um, I... I I mean, I want to get to the Curry conversation because, you know, you're the kind of person that I, I will enjoy having this conversation with. I th- That's incredible that you picked the Warriors in six. I didn't know that. I really wanted to pick the Warriors, and I had picked the Warriors all along before the postseason started. And then before the series started, I changed it to Boston in seven. Because, Chris, I do think, and I think I even still feel that way right now, that Boston has more pieces, and I just thought they were so impressive defensively throughout, as they were in this series as well, that I just thought that that would ultimately win the day, even though Golden State had experience. And I thought they had a chance going into last night. But one of the things that I think became very apparent in in both games four and five is it looked to me like Tatum and Brown were running out of gas. I thought they looked defeated at the end of game five, and that worried me going into the game last night. And I thought Tatum was awful last night. And and he's a great player, and he's going to get other swings at this thing, but he was completely befuddled, befuddled and I thought he looked totally spent physically. What did you think? I'm going to disagree with you on just the notion of you thinking Boston had more than Golden State. I disagree. I think Golden State, Steve, there was something Steve Kerr didn't do in this series that I thought he would have used like his Phil Jackson card and used it. This young man, Jonathan Kaminga, was my favorite player coming out of the draft last year, Kevin. I mean, I'm, I'm on the record with that. He could have at least put Kaminga in there and spot moments and just said, for five minutes, you're just going to guard either Brown or Tatum. And he never really pulled that card. So I think Golden State had more pieces, um, especially when Draymond looked the way he did in game six. When he's able to get the ball off the rim and push pace, now the Celtics defense is scattering. Who the hell are we trying to find? Okay, Because now Draymond can push it up, and you get Curry coming in this secondary break, and he can just launch from 40 feet. You and I know that. I just think once the Warriors exposed Boston's defense for being listed, they are an elite defensive team when they are allowed to do what, Kevin? Load up, set up their defense, and pick who they want to go at. But if you're able to run down their throat, they're just like anybody else's defense. They're scattering around trying to figure out who are we trying to take out. And in that second quarter, when Jordan Poole started getting activated and started hitting shots, that's when Golden State is really at their best because now you've got, I, I hate to call him Curry Light, but he does have this ability to hit some tough shots, oh, yeah. some distant shots, and he can get his swag going a little bit. And now you're getting Steph to maybe take a break, maybe get some rest. You know, he is 34. And that's why I think Golden State had more pieces. And, again, Steve, I think they're going to win it again next year, Kevin, because – we haven't seen Wiseman yet. We saw Poole. Kaminga is in the building. Moses Moody is yeah. another young fellow that I think can shoot the basketball. They've got tons of talent. Bob Myers, again, last night I think Steve Kerr mentioned it, doesn't get enough credit. They have put together a dynasty because those two years 
when they were hurt and COVID and they were at rock bottom, they weren't really at rock bottom. They were reloading in real time and nobody noticed it until you see them now go, oh, wow, they could do this thing again because now next season, Kevin, I think now Curry, Thompson, Green don't have to play a bunch of minutes in the regular season. Steve Kerr can put these young kids out here in November and December and like, hey, look, get your minutes now because when the playoffs start, now we can really toy with some lineups that can really be funky for teams to try to deal with. This Golden State team, not only is it a dynasty, but I have a question for you, Kevin. If so they ask four, if Curry wins five, mm-hmm. now the calculus really changes on where you're putting him like in your top ten. And if he gets the six, then we're gonna have a real conversation. Yeah, it's not over yet. And you know, I, I was um I was taken to task by one of my callers on the radio show this morning to say he's only thirty four, we can't have that conversation yet. And I said, Well, that's fine, but I do sports talk radio and we're having that conversation about Brady and Rogers right now and they're still not done. Um but uh but you know, a couple of things. Number one, you're right. I mean, ultimately you were right. They had more pieces, um, and they didn't use some of those pieces and that that's a good point. But for Boston, you know, you said it. Look, when they're able to set their defense as they were in, you know, games one and games three in particular, it's be- then it's really, really tough and was tough for Golden State um, to generate offense. What really killed Boston, and this is hardly a revelation, is the turnovers and the live ball turnovers that allowed Golden State to get out and transition and score um, and, you know, not have to face Boston's set defense. I still can't believe, Chris, that one player, Jason Tatum, had 100 turnovers in a postseason. And I thought last night he had five. He could have had eight or nine. He got lucky on a couple of ball handling, you know, sloppy ball handling uh, moments, a pass or two that should have been picked or should have gone out of bounds that was saved, you know, inbounds by one of his teammates. Um, it was the turnovers that, that really devastated them uh, and, and got Golden State out in transition where, like you said, look, if any team at any level, you know this because you've coached and, and you've yeah. said, when you yeah. can get out and you don't have to face a team that's set defensively, it makes it a lot easier, a lot easier. You know, I, I, I'm a huge fan. Obviously, you know I'm a Carolina fan. I just love pace. I love secondary break. Anything that you can do to speed up the game and not allow a defense to pick at and go at maybe your best player or, you know what I mean, like throwing double teams and, you know, jump defenses. If you're allowed to get it off the rim and go, that's the way the game was supposed to play. be played. You know, I always told this to kids. I said, you know, Dr. Naismith never invented the game for two hoops just for you to kind of slow walk the ball up. There are two hoops for a reason, right? And the turnovers to me, Kevin, I don't know this. Maybe you can help me. I don't know if there's any league on planet Earth where you can have 22 turnovers in a game and survive it. I I just That is extremely difficult. I don't care if the game is in October or game six of the finals. You turn that ball over 22 times, I think the percentages of you winning that game are very minimal. So 
Tatum has got to learn, and, and he's young. Again, he'll be here again. I, I, I have no doubt about that. He has to understand. And he got better. You know, game one, Golden State was like anybody but him. And I think he had double-digit assists. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin. Yeah. Uh, I think he had 13 assists. Um, well, not last night. Yeah. He, did really, he did a really good job in that first game of being like, look, they're throwing everything at me. Let me get my teammates going. I thought the way he was passing the ball in game one was, like, efficient, not trying to globetrotter it. Let me just get the guy, you know, let me get smarter shot in the pocket, right on time, all those things. But he's got to learn he cannot turn that basketball over. He is way too valuable to his team. I mean, that's just mind-numbing. A hundred turnovers is six. That, that, to me, if you'd have told me that before the series, I'd have bet you probably my mortgage that that wouldn't happen. Yeah, it was it was incredible. A hundred turnovers over uh, 14, 18, 24 playoff games. Uh, that is that's unbelievable. Ultimately, I just think you know the turnovers did them in, um, and obviously Steph did them in as well. So let's move the conversation to him. He was brilliant, you know, with the exception. And by the way, I don't even think he had that bad of a game when he went for 16 points. I thought he made a lot of the right decisions uh, in passing the basketball. I thought he could have had more assists in that game if his team had shot the ball uh, better. But the fact that, you know, as you said, game five, uh, meant to say game five, Boston couldn't win with Curry going 0 for 9 from behind the arc and scoring just 16 points will be certainly a regret. But Tell me what you think of Steph Curry, and, and he's got a lot. He's got more to go. I understand that, but right now, you know, when when you ha- have this conversation with your friends about him and and what his you know ranking is and where he is on on the all time greats list, where do you have him? You know, I have a really good friend that has been on the Curry bandwagon when he was at, even at Davis. Uh, I remember before they played. Maryland, he was telling me about this kid, Curry, and I was like, who? And he's like, no, you're going to see this kid can shoot, and he's got a really good handle. Um, He's a transcendent player, Kevin. Kevin, he's changed the game, and and I'll put it in a way where Coach Sheehan, you'll understand this. So my oldest son played basketball, D2 player. Uh, We would work out before the Curry era, era, and he would walk into the gym, and the first thing we would do is he would hit a shot under the basket. <laughs> My other son that graduated from DeMath and is a D2 player right now, when we started working out because of Steph Curry, the very first thing he would do when he get in the gym, Kevin, was what? <laughs> launch one from deep. <laughs> launch a damn shot from three. And I, I jokingly was tongue-in-cheek to say I blame Steph Curry for that. Because, as you know, these kids today don't mind shooting from 30 feet, nope. even in games. I they, know. Don't, they don't kick. Now, you got to get a coach that's going to be like, hey, coach, sit down next to me, young fellow. You're not, you're not there. Okay. Know, who, know your personnel, right? KYP. But that's the kind of thing that I talk about with Steph Curry. Is I put it in a way where, like, you know, coaches of young kids, he changed the game. He changed the game in which kids actually walk into the gym. Like, what is the first thing that they do? Before, it would be like, hey, let me get like five layups in, and then I'm going to extend out. No, these kids are getting, getting the ball as soon as they don't even warm up. They just shoot from 30 feet. So that's the part of the game where he has 
really turned it around, where it is in vogue now to shoot as far as you can. I'll give you another example. I was on a Wizards workout a week ago, and this kid, Remy Martin, was in there working out. And they do a drill. It's one-on-one. You get it off the rim, and you run down the other end of the court, and you're playing one-on-one, five, four, three, two, one. Remy Martin hit four threes, Kevin, essentially back-to-back-to-back-to-back from 30 feet and beyond. He literally came across half court, took one dribble, and launched. And I remember looking at one of the assistant coaches, and I said, that damn Steph Curry. So that kind of answers your question as to how he has actually changed the game of basketball. Right, but there have been people who have changed and been culturally impactful and game impactful but that doesn't answer the question about where you know he is on the list of all-time great players. You know, clearly Wilt changed the game. They changed rules around Wilt. Um, and you know, we've seen in different sports certain players have that kind of impact. But I think that Steph going into this series was thought by a lot of basketball people to be certainly a transcendent and transformational and impactful player in the way you just described, but not at the level of some of the all-time greats. Like, nobody was, not many people were going to put him in their top 10, you know, if you have a top 10. Um, and I, I think that maybe these finals will change the minds of many of those people. So what do you think on that? Like, is Steph one of the greatest 10 players in the history of the game? I think I'm more open-minded to it today than I was yesterday. And what changed was a fourth title in eight years and him being clearly the best player on those four championship teams. Now, you're going to go, wait a minute, Chris. Mm-hmm. He did have Kevin Durant, right? Yeah. I, I think he, and, and, and this goes to his greatness, I think he understood just how good Kevin Durant was and was able to welcome him, embrace him, allow him to be Kevin Durant. And I think that also needs to go into the calculus of his greatness, Kevin. Kevin, how many times have we watched a game where we just see guys that just don't vibe together? I think that needs to also be in the narrative of Steph Curry is his ability to allow another great player, top 75 player, to come into the fold to be the best version of himself, not allowing the egos and all of this other stuff, nonsense, to creep in and he won titles together. That should also be in the narrative. So today, I'm more open-minded of saying, maybe we should be putting Curry in, into the top ten. I just don't know who that tenth player you're taking off. And well, that's what you, yeah. yeah that, that's what you have to do. But I, I, but, I yeah. do know this. Yeah. I, I do know this. If he wins again next year, uh, there's no doubt. Because he's in the five-ring club. And that, you know, we, we know who's on that list. Um, I heard you on the radio talking about Duncan, and I think I love Duncan more than more than you do. But I, maybe you're taking him off the list and putting Curry in there, especially if he gets the number five. Yeah, look, I mean, it's such a hard thing. I, I um, 
I mean, I already, I, I, I already went through my list. I'm, uh, you know, uh, Michael Magic, Wilt, LeBron, Russell, Kareem, Larry, Kobe, uh, Hakeem, and now I've got Curry in my top top ten. I took out Shaq, um, and I put him ahead of Duncan, Oscar, and Durant. I think he definitely is ahead of Durant now. Durant got, got swept by this team. Okay, he got swept by this team with Kyrie Irving on his team. Uh, in the first round. So I don't want to hear Durant right now. And he's got a long ways to go, too. And Durant's, you know, an all-time great player. Don't get me wrong. But Curry is 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 ahead of him now. But, like, in the, all of these conversations, it's like, yeah, he's top ten. But who, then you start going through the list. You're like, no, he's not better than him. He's not better than him. Uh, maybe he's not top ten. Um, but I, I, I love Duncan. Don't get me wrong. He also played on some great teams, some incredibly well-coached teams, great players uh, around. Him. I, I love Duncan, but I, I just think I, I, I would have Curry ahead of him. But, um, you know, you, you said something just about, you know, what, what the impact on young kids. And I, I God, I, it, it, it really is. It's a last decade thing because if you go back 10 years ago, you know, you're still, you know, at the youth level, at the high school level, you're still trying to get the best possible shot you can closest to the basket. And now it's not, it's not unusual to, to, to be in a place and watch, you know, uh, a high-level youth basketball game where a team attempts 25 to 33s with a running clock, you know, a 17-minute half running clock. I mean, especially, you know, if you don't if, – if you've got those kinds of teams where you've got shooters on it. Uh, it's It's been fun. Not everybody loves it. I – I like um, the evolution of basketball and how it changes, and there will be another change coming down the road that we can't uh, anticipate. But uh, hell of a game by Curry last night, and obviously game four um, is is up there all time. All right, let's talk about the team that you'll be uh, calling. Um, by the way, you mentioned Remy Martin, and you said he came in the gym and he started shooting threes. Like I like Remy Martin, but I think he's got a he's got an odd stroke, doesn't he? He does, and, you know, I'm still a little bit sensitive seeing him. I wanted to punch him in the face when he walked into the arena because he hit all those wonder shots in the second half of the National right. Championship game. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm bitter. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a little weird, and he's, he's small, Kevin. Yeah, he's like, t- like, he, right. I was like, oh, that's that, G League, right? You take G League, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit of an awkward shot, but, man, it goes in. You know, it, it was going in, and, and he's, he's a young player that, uh, obviously has been watching up the Curry tape, right? You think of Trey Young. You think of all these young players now that are not afraid to just shoot from range. And, again, it goes back to what Steph Curry did. You know, Kevin, we were talking about youth sports, and I think analytics has kind of crept in there also because what you're seeing is if we're able to space the floor out by having great shooters, that also opens up attack lanes for you know, really athletic wing guys to get to the cup or – you know, throwing a lob in the dunker spot to a to a big. So I can see how this game has evolved, and I agree with you. There's probably going to be another evolution to the game. Um, but us old heads, we got to get more comfortable with watching these kids launch, especially if they're hitting them. You know, if, if 
not a shooter and he should shoot from 30 feet, he's got to come sit next to Coach Sheehan. <laughs> well, well <laughs> Coach Sheehan occasionally has said, uh, there's a reason they're leaving you wide open. Uh, let's recognize exactly. what that reason exactly. is and let's make the next pass because the guy standing next to you with the floor space was wide open and he's a really good shooter. Um so, uh, you know, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think one of the things in, in Tommy and I, and I've talked to Tommy about this over the years, what Curry really did is he changed kind of the geometry of the floor. You have to guard out much further, and it's created so much more space um, to drive the basketball. Look at what you saw in the last couple of games. They were picking this dude up 70 feet from the bucket in the backcourt and then doubling him yeah. when he crossed halfcourt. There were there were possessions yeah. where they literally doubled him <laughs> after he crossed halfcourt, which, which was nuts. All right, let's get to uh, the team uh, that we both care about the most and the team that you will be calling uh, all of the games for next year, and that would be the Washington Wizards. The draft is on Thursday night. Um, right now, your guess as to whether or not they acquire the point guard that they need through the draft uh, at number 10, through a trade-up and selection in the draft, or through a trade for a veteran player? How do you think the Wizards acquire their point guard for next year? Because they don't have one right now. Great question. I'm going to say they're going to acquire the point guard through another team, through free agency, through, through, through a trade or free agency. I think they either keep 10 or they're able to move up by using some of the young assets that they have currently on the roster. All right, so if, if if you're talking about free agency or you're talking about a trade for a veteran point guard, why don't you at least give me one guess as to who the starting point guard for the Wizards will be next year? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, you know, I keep hearing Malcolm Brogdon's name. I keep hearing it, and I would be very interested to see a Brogdon deal back Right. Me too. Highly intelligent, highly intelligent backcourt with some size. Brogdon can shoot it. He can facilitate it. Uh, his IQ is off the chart. That would be an interesting backcourt for, for us to look at. What do you think? Let's just let let's just say you, let, you know this is obviously hypothetical, but let's say they acquired Malcolm Brogdon and they you had next year. Um, on the roster, you had Brogdon because we both feel like Beal is going to sign the long-term extension, the $246 million deal. And you had Brogdon and you had Beal and you had Porzingis and you had Kuzma and you had Hachimura and you had KCP and you had Avdia. Um, who am I forgetting? Uh, Kispert. Uh, what do you think? Everybody stays healthy. Nobody gets hurt. Uh, it comes together nicely. What is their upside in the East? What's the best they could finish in the East with that group healthy? I think that's at least a mid-May basketball team. So that's at least second round, Kevin. Okay, so you would look what it look what it does. Look what it does. It fixes the defensive part of it, because we both agree Malcolm Brogdon is a really good defensive yep. point guard. He's also a facilitator. He can also shoot. So that checks off the boxes of that position. Bradley Beal, 
who I know will be motivated coming off a career low playing just 40 games. Now he's got his full five-year max, right? There's no worrying about a contract. He's the guy. You look at a guy like Kyle Kuzma, who I thought was the MVP of the team last year. Now he's going into a contract year. He definitely wants to have a great season. And these young kids have now developed. And when you're talking about just being healthy, well, Kevin, can, can you stay healthy? If you can get a group that can be together 70-plus games and they've got a lot of talent, they're going to win games. you, you got to stay healthy. If they're able to stay healthy with that group, that's at least a mid-made group to me. At okay. least. Okay. I mean, a second second round means top four seed, which means approaching 50 wins. I mean, I just want yeah. to make sure we're clear on that, that if you think that they make it to the second round, you think that they are a 47 to 51 win team somewhere in that range. Of course, what we're hypothetically discussing is probably not going to happen because this group won't stay healthy. They've got too many players with injury history. Um, I know you have to run. I've got one more for you. If they stay at 10 and they have the 10th pick in the draft, give me some players that you like at 10. Kevin, I absolutely love Benedict Matherin. I don't know if he's going to be there. I don't think he's going to be there at 10. But for me, he's somebody that just he, he, he fits the NBA mold. Size, athleticism, ability to shoot, get to the basket. Um, Oche Abaji, the kid from Kansas, yeah. Big 12 Player of the Year, uh, is 22 years old. And guess what, Kevin? It's okay to be an upperclassman in the NBA today where that was like, well, God, we've got to get a kid at 19 and develop. No, it's okay to get a 22-year-old. I'm glad you said that. I agree with that. I, I can't stand. Uh, I got that, I got that, so that, much pushback last year when I said I loved Chris Duarte, um, and everybody said, "Well, he's twenty three or tw- going on twenty four. You can't draft a player like that, really." Um, if he had stayed healthy, he would he would have been in the running for Rookie of the Year if he had stayed healthy during the course of the year with the way he started it. But anyway, go ahead. So you like you like uh, the kid nice from Arizona? Kansas. You like the kid from Kansas? Who else? Love him. Uh, this Dyson Daniels kid, you know, the international kids, I don't I don't take a look at them until they come over here. I don't have time to YouTube. I got enough stuff going on. Yeah, this kid, Dyson Daniels, extremely intriguing uh, for his size as a point guard, and he's talking defense. I, I asked him last week, I'm like, what translates right away? And he said, my defense, on-ball defense, off-ball defense, keep an eye on him. The last one, Kevin, I'll leave you with is Johnny Davis. Johnny Davis from Wisconsin. Again, good size for his position at the two guard. If you go back and look at the Wisconsin game at Purdue, he absolutely crushed Jaden Ivey. Yeah. He had 34 points in West Lafayette, destroyed him. And he said he took it for friends, and Jaden Ivey didn't talk to him before the game. And he was like, oh, we're going to hoop like that. So I like kids like that that take the littlest thing to get them motivated. So those are the kind of kids at 10 that I'm interested in. Yeah, um, I'm, I don't think he's going to be there, but I think Keegan Murray, another Big Ten guy, has a chance to be a really good player. And he's, you know, a bit of, you know, I don't want to call him a late developer because um, he just finished his sophomore year at Iowa, but really was a big surprise last year in the Big Ten after just, you know, an okay freshman year. I don't think people saw stardom coming, uh, but he just keeps getting bigger, stronger. He's long, he can do everything. Um, I don't think he'll be there, though, at 10. Um, anyway. No, he won't. He won't. 
I know I know you're in the middle of some stuff, so go ahead. I appreciate you making time for me. We'll talk soon. Always, Kevin. Thanks so much, man. Have a great weekend. You too. Chris Miller, everybody. Uh, always good to catch up with one of the nicest people uh, in sports media, in any media, in our town. Uh, up next, 36 years ago tonight, Len Bias was selected by the Boston Celtics. More on that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Boston Celtics select Len Bias of the University of Maryland. There he is, Len Bias. Len was sitting by his mother. She is here with him. Len Bias had a great career at Maryland. Many people think he may be the best athlete in the draft. That was 36 years ago tonight. Uh, the 1986 NBA draft, Commissioner David Stern announcing Len Bias as the number two overall pick to the Boston Celtics. The Celtics were the defending champions. Uh, I'll tell you, the 86 Celtics are debatably one of the greatest teams or one of the greatest championship teams of all time. And Bias was set to join Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Danny Ainge, Dennis Johnson, Robert Parrish and company uh, with the Boston Celtics. But we know what happened two nights later. And joining me right now, we've had both of these gentlemen on the show previously. Their podcast, Len Bias, A Mixed Legacy, um, Dave Ungrady and Don Marcus are joining me uh, right now. Uh, a couple of episodes left. You can get it anywhere you get a podcast um, on Apple, like many of you are listening. Um, they've done a great job. I've narrated some of it uh, along the way, um, and both of these gentlemen are back. I mean, you know, we'll get into some of the things that we haven't talked about in your previous appearances on the podcast, but I got into, guys, a deep dive this morning a little bit on the – on the show, on the radio show this morning, um, just talking about that 86 draft and just how tragic. I mean, Washburn was pick number three. Roy Tarpley was number seven. Um, you know, I think Chuck Person right now, who was the number four pick, I think he might be in jail right now um, because he was a part of, you know, the the uh, NCAA, uh, you know, corruption uh, scandal, the federal grand jury, which, you know, came back with bribery and conspiracy charges. Um, I mean, we were all so excited about bias going to Boston. I'll start with you, Dave. What do you remember about that night? 
Uh, I remember the euphoria, uh, the excitement, primarily in the DMV era, and, and uh, not primarily, yeah, he was a local kid, and, and there was excitement in the Prince George's County community. There was excitement on the University of Maryland campus. There were, ex- there were uh, high level, understandably, expectations in Boston. Uh, as you mentioned before, he was going to the to the uh, title winning team, and Celtics were thinking they're set for years. So the expectations um, that people felt for what Len could do for basketball and how we could make the DMV area, primarily Prince George's County, proud. And then all of a sudden, you know, two days later, things change, and there's a it's it's nightmarish in various levels for different people for the next couple of decades. Don? Yeah, you know, what I remember is uh, the anticipation of him going to the Celtics and because there were, you know, there was the, you know, talk about how Red wanted him. And, and I, sadly, I wrote sort of an appreciation after he died. It would have been the perfect landing spot, not just from a basketball standpoint, but the one thing that Lenz struggled with at least the one year I was on the beat because I came his senior year to the Baltimore Sun to cover him was he wasn't really comfortable in the brightest of spotlights, you know, and, 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 and I don't know if it was just him just being difficult or just not being, you know, you know, really understanding what the job, his job was with the media. But I said he, it would have been the perfect place for him to go just from that standpoint, because you had all these big personalities and all he, you know, with Larry Bird and McHale and Dennis Johnson and Danny Ainge, and all he had to do was play ball. And, and that would have been so easy for him, that, that role, you know, probably as a six-man starting out, you know, in the, in the, you know, in the Celtic tradition of, of, this, of the great six-men, you know, if, if he had been in that role. Uh, it would have been the perfect landing spot, and it would have been the continuation of a dynasty that had been to the finals had won, you know, had, had just come off a championship, had been to the finals three times that year and uh, that, that decade. And uh, it would have been the perfect landing spot. And it all went away very quickly. You know, um, in looking back at the 86 draft, the other thing that really stood out is just how many ACC players were taken in the first round. I mean, Doherty was the first pick overall. Uh, Bias was the number two pick. Chris Washburn was the third pick. Um, you had uh, Johnny Dawkins, John Sally. Uh, you had five ACC players in the fu- in the top eleven. Um, you had Mark Allery picked in the first round. You had Mark Price uh, picked uh, towards the end of the first round as well. And just remembering, and I talked about this briefly on the radio show, and you guys obviously lived through it uh, the, the way I did. The ACC in those early to mid '80s, my God, was it loaded! I mean, the the, the '86 Maryland team that, and this was Len Bias's senior season. They finished sixth in the league. I mean, they started off zero and six and finished six and eight. You know, uh, on that team, and they ended up, you know, going to the second round and use it, losing to UNLV in the second round of the tournament, and actually had an eight point lead in the second half to get to the Sweet Sixteen. And I think a lot of us thought they had a chance to make a Final Four run. They were, and they were the sixth best team in the ACC that year. 
God, it was it was great back then. I hate being the guy that just continually goes to back in the day, but man, was ACC basketball in the '80s. And as you guys will, I'm sure, note, everybody stayed for the most part for all four years too. I mean, that was Bias's senior year. Jordan went a year early, but you know, a few years earlier than that, Ralph had stayed for four years. You know, Johnny, uh, uh, John Sally, who was a, uh, he, he was part of the podcast early on, and then he narrated one of the last episodes on culture. You know, he talked about the fact that he, he, he met Len at Five Star Camp, and, and, and they were there with Johnny Dawkins, and they talked about all going to Maryland at the same time. And, and the difference was that, you know, Len, Len was set, but Lefty wanted to, Lefty told John Sally he'd have to sit behind Ben Coleman, and 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 Johnny Dawkins had 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 a starting role for him at Duke, waiting for him, because uh, they were they were sort of in the midst of this rebuild that led to their dynasty, with 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 uh, Dawkins and and uh, and Allery and 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 uh, Tommy Amaker and and those guys, um, so. So, you know, you talk, I, I had just come from covering the Big East, which was, you know, talking about 1985 right. when they put place three teams, you know, and then I, you know, I didn't know, I mean, I, I knew, I mean, I covered a little bit of the, you know, covered Carolina's first Final Four, Final uh, ch- ch- uh, NCAA Championship 82, that was my first Final Four. So I was certainly aware of, of the ACC, but when you got there and covered it, it was, you know, and and it wasn't just then. It w- it went on for a good, you know, ten fifteen years more of of that before the one and done started and and things like that, where where it was in the you know great basketball every night. Yeah, incredible. Um, the, the those days, and I'm just looking, you know, at that '86 season. You know, the it, it was Bias's second straight ACC Player of the Year. Um, season. He was the player of the year. Johnny Dawkins was the tournament MVP. Maryland, if you remember, went in on a roll um, into that ACC tournament, beat North Carolina for a second time. I mean, everybody always focuses on the game in the Dean Dome when when Bias, you know, stole the inbounds pass and dunked over his head, and they came back and they beat Carolina in overtime for the Heels' first Dean's first loss in the Dean Dome. Uh, but they ran Carolina out of the building in the ACC quarterfinals, and then Georgia Tech, um, you know, with Dwayne Farrell and 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 Mark Price and and Bruce Dalrymple. That that team, the Maryland had them on the ropes in the semis, uh, and and I think Gatlin threw the inbounds pass away, and Farrell had a dunk basically at the buzzer to win. But um, it was just every night back then, uh, you know, uh, every single night there was a war in 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 that league. Um, it was incredible uh, to think about that Maryland was zero and six in that league and ended up, you know, potentially um, as a Final Four. Uh, contender. So, all right, enough uh, of that. Oh, by the way, you mentioned um, the Dawkins and the Sally stuff. Did you guys see recently Allen Iverson? Um, he was on, I'm forgetting whose podcast it was on right now. And he said that where he wanted really to go to school was he wanted to follow Joe Smith to Maryland. 
And but but remember he was in trouble and people were steering clear of him and then it was Thompson you know who was convinced by Allen Iverson's mother to take him at Georgetown. But did you hear that Iverson said that really his first choice basketball wise because he could have played football in a lot of places too um, was to follow Joe Smith and play at Maryland. I had not heard. Yeah, that. I hadn't heard that. How about you? Yeah, but I know that they huh? played. They played on the same AAU team. Down in down in the uh, Tidewater area, and that's 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 sort of how Maryland found Joe Smith. Was they they weren't scouting Iverson, they were scouting a guy named Ed Guest who went to North Carolina. Didn't have much, you know, didn't have great career there, but that that didn't surprise me because Iverson, you know, played played with Joe, and and uh, you know it, it would have it certainly would have been interesting, but you know, given given what had happened. Uh, a few years before with bias, I'm not sure Maryland would have uh, would have gone forward with that with with all the trouble that Allen was in at that yeah, point. Yeah, he he said, um, and I'm looking it up right now because um, it was the Dan Patrick show, which is where he was um, uh, having the conversation. He said that he wanted to go to Notre Dame to play football. That was really where he wanted to go. And then when Joe Smith went to Maryland, he wanted to go to Maryland to play basketball. But that his favorite player in college basketball at the time was Bobby Hurley. So Duke was a possibility for him too, um, which I thought was interesting. All right. Uh, The podcast has been phenomenal so far. So, you know, we've covered uh, some things along the way about the podcast, but I wanted to sort of, you know, focus on the aftermath and what happened from a sociological standpoint, from a legal standpoint, um, in the wake of Len Bias's death with a lot of the, you know, uh, you know, say no, uh, you know, uh, it, it, just say no, which was the Nancy Reagan slogan uh, during the time, which really came off of Len's death. And then a lot of very, very harsh uh, laws that went into place um, uh, following his death uh, that really impacted uh, especially lower income uh, the lower income demographics. So, Dave, why don't you get, get started and tell us about sort of the the legacy of of Len's death with respect to that uh, part of the conversation? Well, well Kevin, if we're going to focus on his legacy related to drugs and social justice, uh, his death escalated the war on drugs in the eighties. Uh, the Reagan administration, with the help of Nancy Reagan, promoted uh, the campaign. And um, even deeper than that, politically, one of my favorite documentaries, perhaps a favorite documentary, is one called The Two Escobars. It was a 30 for 30. I don't know if you've seen it. I have, yeah. Uh, And there is a reference to Len Bias in that documentary by a gentleman named Tom Cash, who we talked to in our our podcast series. Tom was a federal agent um, whose main task was to police drugs coming into this country. And uh, his comment was um, related to Pablo Escobar was that the death of bias not only changed, it not only changed the way cocaine was perceived in this country socially, politically, uh, but also how the government, in in a sense, changed its the way it was going to try to shut down Pablo Escobar and his cocaine operation in Colombia, which is really just fascinating. 
So, as we've said before on your show and, and, and other places, Lend Legacy, it, it, the tentacles are just so widespread. Um, to sort of update what's happening with with the uh, the War on Drugs Legacy Park and the Anti-Drug Abuse Act that was passed uh, directly related to his death, Congress within four months passed it after Lend died. And we go into the details in the podcast about this. Uh, but basically what it did was it established a 101 to disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. If you had 100 grams of powder cocaine and I'm sorry. Yeah, it was really 500 to five. It was a 101 disparity as an example. If you had 500 grams of powder cocaine and five grams of crack cocaine, you received the same mandatory minimum sentence of five years and not just using it, but Uh, you didn't have to touch it. If you were involved in a cocaine conspiracy, you would receive the same sentence. Let's uh, move forward, you know, more than 30 years. Congress is very close to passing what's called the Equal Act. Uh, in, in 2010, um, Obama, uh, Congress and Obama passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which reduced the disparity to 18 to 1. And it, it reduced a lot of sentences. Uh, people who have been languishing in prison, mostly young black men and women from the 90s, 80s and 90s, who have been in prison for 20, 30 years for these ridiculous crimes, or, uh, the heavy sentences. Um, that, that was reduced to 18 to 1 by the Fair Sentencing Act. Now, the Equal Act and is, is, is very close. It's gaining momentum to being passed. It would wipe out the disparity. Um, within the last week or so, I've been reading about where 10 Republican senators have come on board with it including Rand Paul, who was very conservative, uh, which would avoid the filibuster. And, and, but it hasn't come to the floor yet. I don't know why. Uh, I haven't been able to pinpoint why it hasn't come to a vote yet. But it's Chuck Schumer has said he wanted to pass, and they seem to have the votes, but it just hasn't passed yet. So that's sort of a timely reference to all this, wrapping all that up on the, on the, on the legacy part related to drugs. And, and there, there's, there's so much more that we can get into as well on the, on uh, the culture, cultural aspect as well. I want to ask you, though, in the moment, you know, following his death, you know, with this very anti-drug, you know, drug, war on drugs, um, and even the things that went with it, like these five-year mandatory minimums that were obviously incredibly harsh, weren't they popular Um, policies at the time uh, among voters, or am I wrong about that? No, and, and Joe well, Biden played a pretty big role with it with the Senate Judiciary Committee. On um, he, he voted for it. Um, he was a proponent of it then in the early 90s. Uh, he was part of the Judiciary Committee. He was he was the chairman, I think, of the Judiciary Committee that helped pass more strict criminal uh, laws against uh, minor crime, drug crimes. So this went on for decades. It really wasn't until the mid mid two thousand, uh, like two thousand six and seven, soon after Obama came in, that it changed the momentum to let's pay more attention to this, and and everything is changing uh, the other way now, and we're close to wiping it out. Yeah, I want. I just wanted to add. It was you know it was all, they they used bias as death. The politicians, Democrat, Democrats, even more than the Republicans at the time used it as a political weapon uh, to try to get the house back in 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 in, right. in, in, in the you know and 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 you know the black legislative caucus was behind it 
you know, that, that was their way to try to get, you know, to, to beat Reagan. And, and, you know, the, um, the, uh, the chief legal counsel, um, and I'm blank, Dave, give me the guy's name, uh, Eric, um, the, uh, yeah, uh, Eric, uh, I'm cramping on this too, but I'll, I'll remember as you start talking, I'll think of it. Yeah, uh, he, he said it was the worst piece of like Eric Sterling, I'm sorry, Eric Sterling. Yeah. Eric Sterling, Eric right. Sterling. He, right. He was legal counsel to the Judiciary Committee. He said it was the worst piece of legislation he had ever written. Mm. That's what he called it. Year, year, you know, for you know, years later, and for our podcast, we talked to him. Uh, it was, it was. He, he was a political pawn. You know, his death was used by politicians, and 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 continually, you know, really, still to this day, you know, because of all these, this, all this you know, debate about mandatory minimums and everything like that. It really, it's unbelievable how the death of a basketball player, and, and, and we talked to people who said if he, if he had died, I don't know if we talked about it earlier with you, Kevin, but if he had been at the University of Missouri or the University of, you know, Texas or something, it, it, it might not have gotten the same attention, but because he was in the nation's capital and, and Tip O'Neill was a season ticket holder for the Celtics, you know, had season tickets for the Celtics, he was a big Celtics fan. They used Bias's death to, you know, they weaponized his death. Well, let's let's not forget too, um, and I think we've mentioned this in previous conversations. Uh, a week or so later, uh, Don Rogers, who was a safety for the Cleveland Browns, also dropped dead uh, after uh, uh, you know of a cocaine overdose. Now, his death did not get the same attention that Len Bias's did. Uh, Bias was the first, and Bias was a superstar. Don Rogers, by the way, was a good player um, and was a first-round NFL pick uh, a few years earlier. You know, I'm wondering the impact of Bias's cocaine-induced death on the actual number of people that age, older, younger, that decided that that was it for them as far as cocaine goes. Because I think, you know, being in school, being you know at the University of Maryland during those years, look, it was a crazy time being at a, at a big state school in the mid-80s. You know, it, it, there, there was a lot of stuff going on. And I do remember very, it had a very profound effect on many people because you saw this super, you know, human looking uh, 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 athlete th- that cocaine took down. Um, what kind of impact did it have on the usage of cocaine after his death? We talk anecdotally quite a bit um, in the podcast series, and I, and I address it in the book, people who never used it because of, of Len's death. The, um, uh, I'll cite a couple. Uh, Keith Booth from the University of Maryland was a, is a 14-year-old or so when Len died. He said to convince him to never use drugs, and he used that as as motivation to work harder and, and be the great player that he was. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, this is something that we didn't find out in Tuction. And I uh, found it online. He, he was on a podcast recently where he talked about Len's death. And when Len died, his father told him, <laughs> you got you got to hear this soundbite. It's, it's so funny. It's, it's typical Shaquille, you know, dramatic. And But he said his father said, if 
if you ever touch cocaine, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, oh, I'm not, I guess I'm not going to use cocaine, right? Yeah. So uh, anecdotally, it's out there. The, there are statistics that cocaine use um, was reduced as a result of the lens in the next 10 years, especially among teenagers. Uh, and it, But the numbers weren't as dramatic as I thought they would be. And I think a problem was that if you're addicted to cocaine, it doesn't really matter to, the, to a lot of people who are addicted to it. It was a very addictive, addictive drug. An example, Chris Washburn, who, when I asked him specifically if Len's death impacted him at all, said, no, I was addicted to cocaine. I still was going to, you know, for a day or so, I was like, oh, man, that's, that's bad. But it didn't stop him from using it. So, but it, it, did, it did impact on a, on a grander, on a larger scale, socially, the numbers went down among among a lot of users, and and I don't know how that transferred past the '90s and the 2000s, but certainly through the mid '90s, the numbers went down of, of cocaine use. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, from my standpoint, I mean, there were people that I knew that continued, uh, but you know, paused briefly and then continued, and then there were many people. Um, and I, and that would include me that never used it because of that. I, I, I drank a lot of beers at the VU, uh, a lot of $2 pitchers at the VU, uh, back in the day and, and certainly experimented with other things, but cocaine, um, I think a lot of people became terrified of it. The, the thought that you could use it once and be in super condition physically and drop dead, um, was terrifying th- to a lot of people, I think. Well, Kevin, I, I did try it as you, and that, and that, if I quickly, Don, if I may, uh, in the mid '80s, I was, um, you know, it's almost similar in age to you, or in my early, early to mid twenties, and and you had a lot of parties, there's a lot of beer, just cocaine. Um, but I actually didn't like it. I tried it once, and I didn't like it. Uh, it got me too hyper, and I was already hyper enough. But there was a, uh, I'll use an anecdotal story. There was a, a very good friend of mine on the Maryland track team a year behind me and, and a very good runner. Uh, and I saw he got addicted to cocaine and it really, it devastated. I mean, he, he lost his wife. Uh, he, he was lucky to be alive. So and I saw what it did to some people and it, they didn't stop after Len died. They kept, if you're addicted, I think it was a different, different issue. I'm sorry, Don. Go ahead. And no, I, I, it, it was a wake up call for the NBA. You know, it, it, um, there were, there were things in place. David Stern, who was legal counsel at that point in time, uh, in like 1983 or 84, had written some new, you know, uh, anti-drug, you know, pro- policy into the, into the, uh, into the collective bargaining agreement. But they still, there was still a big issue. I mean, the year, the year Len died, John Lucas, Right. Uh, a few months before, passed out in a in a locker room. You know, uh, you know they they talk about they talk about the um, the um, they just finished the a couple months ago. The, you know, uh, the HBO Winning Time was about the '80s Lakers and, yeah. and Spencer Hayward. You know, and 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 how he this was prior to Len's death, but it really sort of you know after he died, um, they really the, the, the NBA and this is something we talked about in one of the later episodes. They had they, they started their rookie orientation programs, and they they actually brought in Lonise Bias to talk to the talk to the uh, players about about her experience and what happened with her son. So uh, there was a there was a uh, off Broadway or the, the Today Show did a 
a story that we mentioned in in one of the episodes, and and it was a it was a play that was based loosely on on uh, on on Bias's character, and and the story wasn't exactly the same, but it it was motivated by the le- death of Len Bias. So there were a lot of things that happened as a result of Bias's death. And, 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 you know, to this day, uh, this year, uh, there's a popular TV show that I've been watching for, for years called Snowfall. It's about the crack epidemic right. in, in, the, in South Central L.A. And the opening episode this, year, uh, this past season was uh, they had a reenactment of Bias's death in the suite in the dorm at Maryland and how it impacted the, the way police, you know, the policing of young black men out in out in L.A., uh, so it really impacted a lot. Uh, you know, it, as Dave said, the tentacles were far-reaching and continued to, uh, you know, you know, thirty-six years later, continued to uh, impact the world. Yeah. Uh, next Kevin, week, Kevin, if I can add to that, yeah, if please. I can add to that a little bit, please. Uh, uh, Don mentioned this play; it's called Home Court. And um, not only was it featured on, on the, uh, the Today Show, uh, Brian Gumbel was the host, but uh, the, the, the NBA orientation programming program in, or, uh, integrated it into their program for the rookie. So the play was performed as part of the program for years. And it, it, according to the performers in the play, and we talked to them for the podcast, and the director and, and the actor who, who portrayed the character based on bias, um, it was re- tremendously received by the NBA players. So uh, it went even deeper into the NBA than, than, than Don had mentioned, and, um, and so it had a, had a really good impact, a strong impact on the league. You know, um, one of the episodes of your podcast, and again, you can get Len Bias, a mixed legacy, uh, produced, um, written, um, by Dave Ungrady and Don Marcus, of course, Don, longtime columnist uh, at the Baltimore Sun, um, was the and we talked about it briefly. I think the last time you were on, how does a family and how does a, a mother and father handle one death of a child, let alone two? And I think you know you guys touched on on one of those episodes just the story of Len's younger br- brother, Jay Bias, who was a pretty good basketball player. Um, himself, it's just—I mean—you talk about uh, a world of of family hurt um, for a mother that was so strong too. I mean, she just was always an amazing woman. But um, Lens Lens uh, death really impacted, you know, his brother, and, and it's amazing to see that that family what they've gone through. Well, you, we felt that was such an important part of his legacy that we dedicated one episode. To the impact on the family, and uh, I've mentioned this to Don many times when we reflect on that episode. I think one of the more um, emotional episodes is that one, and especially talking about Jay, because we we really uh, portray that story, part of the story through his best friend, probably his best friend Clint Venable, who was a very prominent player in the area. Right. Uh, he won a state title at Northwestern with Jay played at Bowling Green, and Clint, Clint's memories and reflections on Jay are, are very, very powerful. He, he was in touch with Jay all the way. He, he went to junior college for a year, um, and his insight is, is, is very strong. 
And we were able to get a lot of comments from Lenise Bias because she would not, didn't, we didn't approach them, as we mentioned before, for this podcast series. She didn't talk to us for the book. We thought it was not going to happen, and hopefully we'll solve that down the road. But we were able to get an interview with Rock Newman that she did with Rock Newman on, on a, a broadcast of WHUR TV. And she gets, it goes into detail about how it affected her and the family. And the co- what, what I think is striking there is the contrast. Uh, Lenise Bias's reaction to Len's death was dramatically different to, than her reaction to Jay's. Len, to Len's death, she was very composed, very calm. She sort of sensed something was going to happen, so it helped her deal with it better. And, and, but Jay's death, she admitted for three days nobody could talk to her. She was throwing stuff. She was in bed for three days, leave me alone, and, and very just, just violently, violent reaction um, by her. Uh, but, but after three days, she had, she had recovered from that. But th- that, I think, is, is emotionally more, probably the more powerful episode of the whole series, most powerful. Dave, Don, thanks, uh, as always. Oh, I know you wanted to mention um, someone who was working on this podcast and very tragically um, earlier this month died uh, in a bicycle um, accident. I know that this young man, Enzo, uh, had been helping you out a lot on this podcast. It was actually about a year ago at this time. We, we, we worked with eight interns from the University of Maryland and one from American University. And uh, they were very helpful. We wanted to integrate interns into this process, especially for Maryland, because we, we thought it was important for as students they could look, get to understand the story better. Plus, I think they would have a, a, have a deep interest in, in helping with this kind of sure. a, a project and just, just connecting the university to it uh, because they'd become more accepting of his legacy as well. So it was a natural progression. About a year ago at this time, I got an email from from a who was then and he was entering his um, freshman year at Maryland. And as you under, if you've ever had an internship, they usually don't go to juniors and seniors. And he knew he couldn't get one, but it was a very well written email uh, by Enzo Alvarenga. He from Chevy Chase from the DC area. And he knew he couldn't get credits, but he wanted to help out. And Enzo did some great work helping uh, edit audio and video clips for not only the, um, and preparing clips for the, for the podcast itself, but some promotions we did that are online on, on the Go Grady Media website, a timeline of, of what happened, the, the reaction of Len's death, uh, top moments, his uh, news moments for the next four or five months. He did a great job on that. And um, he was riding his bike uh, on a sidewalk on, on old uh, Georgetown Road, which you're familiar with, Kevin. Anybody in the D.C. area probably is in, in Bethesda against traffic. And it was a very narrow sidewalk. And he lost control of his bike and ended up on the road. And a van coming the yes. opposite direction hit him almost immediately. And it was, I guess, fortunately, in a sense, it was, it was a quick, quick, quick result. Um, I had talked to him the night before we had because he said he, he was trying to get credits for this summer and we were trying to get it for him, but he could not, could not get the credits. And he, typically of Enzo, he said, look, I want to help anyway. What can I do? And we had mapped out a whole summer for him. And it, it, he was, 
he was diligent. He was respectful. He was yeah, yeah, honest. A great young man, uh, and I, I never met him because of COVID. We did, we did a lot of, and Don met him through uh, Zoom calls and and phone calls as well. And it's 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 certainly it's tragic, but he left a great impression on us. Uh, and and, uh, and 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 if I could sort of tag it this way, I did go to the funeral service uh, two weeks ago and met his mother and father. I, and I mentioned to his mother who I was, and 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 that Enzo helped us a lot. She goes, "That's interesting. He never told us. He doesn't tell us many. Things. He didn't oh, tell us many things." Yeah, well, he was an eighteen-year-old, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> uh, and that was his personality. He was very quiet, and she started crying a little bit. And then then I walked over to her father, his father, and I said the same to him, and and he said with a smile on his face. Enzo was very proud of the work he did for you, <laughs> so, which, which was pretty cool. Yeah, so, yeah. He, he's left an impression on us, and and uh, hopefully he's in a better place. Sympathies, guys. Uh, I am sorry for your loss. It sounds like he was one hell of a young man. Um, all right, uh, Dave Ungrady, Don Marcus, a mixed legacy, Len Bias. It's a podcast you can get anywhere. Uh, where you're getting a podcast right now. I recommend it highly. Thanks, as always. We'll catch up soon. Thank you, Eric. All right, that is it for the show today. Uh, I'll be back on Monday. Have a good weekend. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.